Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. We would get students from different backgrounds, different political beliefs, different religious beliefs, different cultures, and I would see this marked difference over the weeks as we would discuss a poem. And as people focused on that poem and their individual experiences and juxtaposing their experiences with each other or even their experience with the literature, there was sort of this ease of meeting in a place that was more human not issue-oriented, not coming in at it, of we're going to, you know, we are going to hash this thing out, but rather, why do you respond to this poem? You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7. I'm Michael John Cusick. My guest today, and over the next two episodes, is Denver writer and poet Joy Sawyer. In addition to authoring several nonfiction books, Joy is the author of a recent poetry collection entitled Tongues of Men and Angels. Her poetry, essays, and fiction have appeared in such diverse publications as Books and Culture, Christianity Today in Literature, Inklings, The Mars Hill Review, New York Quarterly, and others. Joy is also an innovative performance poet, and she has long created unique ways for others to experience poetry. Along with her husband, Scott, also an author, she's presented her original poetry and liturgy one-act play, The Gospel According to Poetry, at literary conferences, writing retreats, theaters, universities, and churches across the country. Since 2009, Joy has taught both poetry and introduction to creative writing classes at the Lighthouse Writers' Workshop in Denver, the largest nonprofit literary center in Colorado and the Mountain West. In addition to Lighthouse, Joy also has taught both writing and healing poetry and poetry coursework in the Masters of Liberal Arts program at the University of Denver. Joy received an M.A. from the New York University, where she was awarded the Herbert Rubin Award for Outstanding Creative Writing. So join me now and listen to my two-part conversation with Joy Sawyer. Joy Sawyer, thanks for taking time to be with me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. You're welcome. Tell me, when did you first start writing poetry, and when did you know you were a poet? Great question. Well, I grew up in a small town in Kansas, and when I was in third grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Mallory, and 
she introduced us to literature. And so every lunch period, she would read to us out of a book. She read Charlotte's Web and A Wrinkle in Time, and I just loved these books. But she also taught us a variety of poetic forms. She taught us haiku, she taught us limericks, and I fell in love with that language. It felt like my native tongue. And pretty soon, I was writing whenever I could. Um, it was a right about the time that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and RFK were assassinated. 1968. Yes. April 4th and June 5th. Which dates me. But um, I was searching for a way to uh, express myself because I felt such deep sadness. Even in the third grade. Even in the third grade. My parents were huge Kennedy Democrats. And... You know, I grew up in a home where um, I heard those names a lot. And so I did a lot of writing that year. But then, of course, I morphed into more playful things and fun things. And I've been writing since I was eight. So you've already touched on the subject that poetry can not just touch the soul, but heal the soul. Yes, I think, you know, we have a rich tradition of poetry in the Psalms. And that's one of the things that's been special to me is knowing that this sort of poetic language has been a way not only to express ourselves um, in terms of worship or praise, but also the depths of our soul, like Psalm 88, where it's this hopeless, seemingly hopeless psalm, that there's a place in the canon for every kind of expression. So grief, sadness, joy, Contentment. So you talk about the fact that you're calling poetry a language, and some people may not connect with that idea. But So it's not like speaking Mandarin or French, but it is a language. Say more about that. You know, like for me, there are some things that just don't feel like they can be said without rhythm, without image, um, without some different kind of structure that feels to me more fluid and more mysterious than just talking, you know. And so for me, that always felt like second nature. It felt like I think this way. I would talk this way if it came to me in the moment, you know. So in third grade, uh, poetry was a language that you could understand when other mediums didn't touch you. Yes, I think so. And one of the first reasons I did fall in love with it was that it was playful. You know, it it played with sound. I loved the sound of things. You know, my ear would just kind of delight in rhymes and, you know, even half rhymes back then, you know, to where I just loved the sound of something. And I would say words over and over just because I loved saying them. So from third grade on, how did your life in poetry develop? Well, as I went into junior high, I had some other great teachers. Kansas had great education. Um, I I just felt really fortunate growing up in my town because I had so many good teachers. And in eighth grade, I had a uh, teacher that loved poetry and introduced that. When I was in ninth grade, I had a wonderful English teacher by the name of Mrs. Larson, and she had us read the Iliad and the Odyssey when we were in ninth grade. 
So, and she, uh, she let us do presentations. I wrote some songs and performed them. I mean, just a lot of nourishment for creativity. When did you begin to say, I am a poet and identify uh, as that? Wow, that's a good question. I think from the time I started writing, it just felt, that's me, you know. I want you today to read some of your poetry, but let's talk a little bit more about your background as well. You are a registered poetry therapist. Yes. As well as a licensed professional counselor. Yes. Now, I um, closed my practice about three years ago, and actually, before that, I really gave myself to teaching. So I've been teaching for about eight years at Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver, which uh, is an independent literary center that teaches a variety of creative writing schools. And I taught at the University of Denver for about 10 years. So Teaching re- poetry. It was called Writing and Healing. It was in a master's level program, liberal studies, where they had a creative writing certificate program. And this um, particular class fell into that category. So since this program is called Restoring the Soul. Let's talk about how writing um, and healing go together, especially from your perspective as a, as a therapist. You know, early on, because I was a writer and a poet, I was looking for ways that I could integrate uh, techniques into my practice where I could kind of engage my client's creativity. And of course, being a poet, I thought, why not use that? Of course, at the time, I didn't really know um, that later on we would have research that showed how beneficial writing is, and even poetry, out of my own experience. So I started handing out poems, having people write poems, and not long after that I found out about an organization called the National Association for Poetry Therapy. And I went, oh my gosh, combining therapy and poetry, I mean that just sounded like a dream come true. So I started training in that modality in 2000. I became like a certified poetry therapist, which they do a lot of developmental work, and then a registered poetry therapist, which is more clinical work, and then I became a mentor supervisor. So for several years, you know, we did training groups for, uh, you know, a week, and I would work with different therapists or writers or um, educators on how to use the particular model that I'm trained in. So what does uh, poetry therapy look like in a clinical setting? Well, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations when you say poetry therapy, which is also known as expressive writing therapy, bibliotherapy, bibliopoetry therapy, and even journal therapy. Um, They think it's just an expressive writing practice where people will sit down and write. But actually the model I'm trained in, which is called the Heinz and Heinz Berry model, was created out of um, really just a very unique situation. There was a librarian at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., which dealt with a lot of challenging psychological conditions. And the librarian there, Arlene Hines, noticed that when she handed out short stories or novels or poems and Uh, participated in like guided conversations about the literature that people really seemed to come around 
And so soon after she was working with the psychiatrist who helped her develop the model, she was a very interesting woman. She had 10 kids. And when her uh, husband passed away, she became a Benedictine nun. So a nun with 10 kids, but fascinating person. And slowly this model spread not just to therapists, but to writers and poets and educators and spiritual directors. And it's based on the fact that she believed that the model strength was a catalyst outside the self. So the model is really a literature model where you hand someone a poem and you talk about it, let's say in a group, and different people are calling out things that matter to them, that mean something to them. Pretty soon it goes a little deeper where people are talking about memories that come to them or ways that they feel like this relates to their life. And then at the end, a lot of writing practitioners added a creative writing prompt. So it became both a literature model and a writing model. And um, it has some of the same therapeutic goals that we see in a lot of modalities, but it's very flexible and adaptable. I mean, you can really adapt this model almost to any setting, you know, so... um, It sounds like a subversive way to get people engaged with their inner world, as opposed to saying, how do you feel? And someone might say, I don't know. You get them talking about the poem and they're talking about their inner experience anyway. That is exactly it. And I think it's just an easier doorway in a lot of times, rather than jumping in and say, let's talk about your alcoholic father. You know, you're presenting a poem, you're talking about, you know, some aspect, someone starts to tell a story, you know, there's a self-application at the end. So it's just, it incorporates so much about real life But also it's so sound. The goals of poetry therapy are like match so many therapeutic goals, but they're almost effortless. They're almost, they don't feel contrived, you know, and I've seen this time and time again, you know, have such a benefit. And now we know more about the psychological and emotional benefits. Years ago, 1999, a University of Texas psychologist out of the, um, named James Pennebaker, did a study at UT where he had several students write for four days in a row for 20 minutes a day about a traumatic incident in their life. And the control group just kind of did what they wanted, but he monitored these particular students and had it be a timed right, not a free association, but 20 minutes. Each day, they progressively added more details or provided more narrative structure to what they were writing. And so at the end, it was more of a cohesive story, not fragmented. Well, after they followed up, they saw that 43% of those people who who participated in the way that Pennebaker led them showed a 43% reduction in visits to uh, the school clinic. And later, as he began to look at it, he saw that there were definite psychological benefits for these people who were able to put this on paper, use a lot of sensory, concrete details, not abstracts, all the stuff that 
I know that you know as a therapist, I've watched you work, you know, for many years, and it's like we can actually see that in the writing process. That's significant. That's really amazing that there's that kind of um, empirical data. Oh, yeah, and more and more. The Journal uh, for American Medical Association also had a study in 1999 where they showed that there was a significant reduction in asthma and arthritis symptoms among those who wrote about traumatic incidents in their lives. So it's so connecting physical, the mind-body reality. Yeah, we see more. And, and there, there are people who are doing more and more research. Those are just a couple of examples. This seems like such a... Um such low-hanging fruit to, to do with people, you know, to get to, to expose them to something like literature or poetry. Why do you suppose it's not being done more if it's you so know, significant? I don't know. And I have, I know so many great practitioners all over the country, and now we've, we have people internationally, and it still remains such a small field. But, um, you know, I'm trying more and more to see if there's other avenues that I can get this model in. I revised and updated our standard academic textbook about three or four years ago. And what's the name of that textbook? That you is called that Bibliopoetry Therapy, the Interactive Process. It's published by North Star Press, and it was the textbook that Arlene Hines wrote, along with her daughter, Dr. Mary Hines-Berry, who is a professor at the Erickson Institute of Early Childhood Development. So so Milton Erickson, not Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson. Oh, that Erickson. Okay. Yeah. It really is a solid model, and, you know, it, it, you can take it into at-risk youth. You can take it into battered women's shelters, into prisons, into schools, into creative writing groups. We have various adaptations, and I've just found it is so adaptable and so usable and so simple to really teach. Well, many of the settings you just described, prisons, women's shelters, and teens, they're populations that would not respond well to typical talk-oriented psychotherapy. That's right. And in this kind of model, like bibliotherapy, any kind of written material is game. So film, fiction, short stories, essays, song lyrics. And we know song lyrics work a lot better with at-risk youth who can bring in a song that means something to them, talk about the lyrics, you know, have a guided discussion yeah. on that. So as people are listening, they may be thinking, wow, at first I'm not a poetry therapist, but counselors, pastors, etc., who are using music and, and, and poems and novels and things like that, that's, that's an element of this. Yes. And when you couple that with a guided conversation, you know, about a piece of literature or about a film, you know, with a self-application piece at the end about... Where, does, where do you want to apply this? Or what do you want to write about this week? You know, what does this make you think of that you like to do? I mean, the, the yeah. possibilities are endless. Do you think or suspect that uh, this is related to kind of the growth and proliferation of book clubs like Oprah launched? It, it very well could be. You know, now we see book clubs are just a typical thing now. Where, where yeah. novels will have a list of questions in the back for discussion purposes. Exactly. So I think people like the communal aspect. It's not just solitary, you know, being together and talking about something. And uh, that reminds me of one more thing that your listeners might be interested in. But Arlene Hines, when she developed this model, 
developed it out of her own daily practice of Lectio Divina, divine reading. And that's what I think gives it the strength is having something outside the self to look at and to respond to in writing and in conversation. It's just a different process than when you're going cold into anything. Wow, I had no idea that that was part of the background of this. Uh, So just like letting the poetic or the the literary text speak, Lectio Divina is about allowing the scriptures to speak rather than trying to exegete them. Yes, just reading contemplatively, you know, is we know what happens with that, you know. But also, when I was at DU, I witnessed something interesting that was another aspect of this, and that is that it's a surprising peacemaking tool because we would get students from different backgrounds, different political beliefs, different religious beliefs, different cultures, and I would see this marked difference over the weeks as we would discuss a poem, you know, and go to another poem. And as people focused on that poem and their individual experiences and juxtaposing their experiences with each other or even their experience with the literature, there was sort of this ease of meeting in a place that was more human, not issue-oriented, not coming in at it of we're going to, you know, we are going to hash this thing out, but rather why do you respond to this poem you know, that that makes you remember a time at your grandmother's farm, you know. That makes me think of a, a line from Eugene Peterson, and I forget which of his books it's in, but he said, every time we read a poem, we don't have more information, we have more experience. Yes. And when we experience, and this is not Eugene now, close quote, every time we experience another person's reality, it, it creates the possibility for compassion and for understanding as opposed to defensiveness. Does that strike you as Absolutely. what you experienced? And that's, that's another highlight, you know, this model. I, I've witnessed it, you know, and it, it, it has that effect. One can only wonder uh, if blacks and whites and Arabs and Jews and other groups kind of sat down and had an opportunity to do this. What might be the impact? Oh, well, we do see that among several poets. I mean, one of our best-known poets these days, I think, her, her stuff is the most widely read, is Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a Palestinian-American poet. And her poems reach way, I mean, across cultures, across boundaries, even ages. There are grade school kids who use her poems, read their poems. They're MFA students. She has a poem that's circulating widely called Gate A4 and another one called Kindness. These are two poems that people turn to. And if your listeners, you know, Google these, they can find them. But um, they're amazing poems. So Naomi, Shihab, Nye. Who are some of your other modern poets that are currently writing that you're drawn to or that you'd like to expose people to? Oh, gosh. And a lot of your listeners will have read these poets, I'm sure. I gravitate towards sort of a plain-speak type of poetry, not simplistic. It just speaks to me more. And I find more resonance in it when I find layers to it. So I love poets like Jane Kenyon and Lee Young Lee and Mary Carr. A lot of your listeners probably read Mary Oliver or Wendell Berry. Um, There's a couple of poets I've discovered in the last couple of years that I love, Jack Gilbert 
and Jim Harrison. I've just been reading a book by Jim Harrison. There's also, you know, poets that have come on the scene more recently, at least for myself, and that's a poet uh, like Christian Wyman, you know, that he has a wonderful memoir called My Bright Abyss and a wonderful book of essays called uh, Ambition and Survival, which is about the poetic process. And I recently taught a class on this at Lighthouse. But he just, he was the poetry editor of uh, Poetry Magazine for 10 years. And I've really responded to his work, too. Some people who are listening might be thinking, you know, I've, I've tried to read poetry. You know, maybe they're thinking back to 7th or 8th grade, or they had to read Shakespeare or something like that. Or, or maybe the Iliad or the Odyssey, and they go, I just, I just don't get it. And I was like that for a long time, and then I was exposed to other kinds of poetry. So what would you say to someone who has had an experience, and they go, that's just, that's just not me? That's been one of the joys for me of doing the bibliotherapy work, is one of the ways we approach poetry, because people, a lot of people have the experience you just described is when we first read the poem together, we'll just ask, is there a line you like? Is there an image? Do you like the title? Um, Does it speak to something in your life? You don't have to perfectly understand this. Um, Do you hate the poem? Well, tell us about that. I mean, any visceral or emotional or any kind of conversational response is valid in this kind of model. So it's less about understanding and more about experiencing and the impact. Exactly. And like in in some of the conversations that we might have as therapists, we know what a huge issue shame is. And this is what I've seen, how, how a model like this, how introducing poetry like this is a way of dismantling shame because so many people have such really, really memorable experiences with feeling dumb with feeling like there's something wrong with them, for feeling like I don't write, but read poetry, I can't read poetry. And so it's just been heartening to me to see people like that end up loving a poem and sharing it with their friends and family and and overcoming something that really can be a block for a lot of people. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.